we have so much fire, so much passion about wanting to address these inequities when they come up, that finding the way to connect with someone about it, to say, I need to raise your awareness about what is going on because this needs to change, can be really hard. another episode of Diversity on Fire. This is your host, Heather. We are on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Joining me today is Dr. Roxy Manning. Roxy is a clinical psychologist, a certified Center for Nonviolent Communication trainer, a consultant and speaker, and she is also the author of How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, Embracing Our Full Humanity to Challenge White Supremacy, and the co-author with Sarah Payton of the companion text, which is called The Anti-Racist Heart, A Self-Compassion and Activism Handbook. Whew, lots of things, <laughs> and I'm sure that only just scratches the surface. Welcome to the show, Roxy. Thank you, Heather. I'm delighted to be here. All right. So I always like to dig in by starting off with your personal backstory. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a little taste of um, what your, and I like to say your origin story, because we're looking for, you know, where you started when you were young, some, some points that you feel like really shaped you as a human. So family dynamics, cultural, religious upbringings, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I came to the United States when I was seven. I was born in Trinidad in the West Indies, and I think that was already one of the things that really shaped me and my identity. When I came to the U.S., you know, I'm a black Afro-Caribbean person. I moved to Harlem, which was also primarily black at that time, and I didn't quite understand the differences between, like, the vast diversity of experience in the African diaspora. You know, so my experience as a Black Caribbean person was different than the experience of a lot of my friends and the folks I was growing up. And it meant that I was actually treated differently than a lot of my fellow peers, right? Teachers really loved me. In Trinidad, I had been in advanced classes. And so people really kind of held me up as, in a way, a really toxic example of, well, if she can do it, then the reason y'all are not succeeding because y'all aren't trying hard enough, Right. And that was really hard because as a young person, there's a part of you that's like, oh, wow, people are celebrating me. How lovely that is. But it means I'm also accepting all of these beliefs about, you know, and other black folks in America are just not trying hard enough. And that's something that a lot of times people don't talk about. Like, you know, we also take on some of these beliefs. And so I had to unlearn them. I've, I've heard that more and more often about the immigrant experience versus the um, African-American experience and how vastly mm -hmm. different that can be. But when you show up, it's you're still looked at the same way in a lot of areas, but not necessarily within your own community. So that just right. brings layers upon layers of additional challenges that you have to, to work through. Now, and you touched on some of it here, but I know even beyond what you just mentioned, you've talked about how, and I think you called it uh, new and divergent re realities, where mm -hmm. privilege, expectation, opportunity, just general freedoms shifted depending on 
what situation you were in. So you mentioned Harlem where that was a predominantly black community, but then you were changed to a private school where you were then the minority. And so it you it sounds like you've had multiple experiences where that balance kept going, you know, one side to another. I'm curious one if you remember when you first became really tangibly aware of those dynamics mm-hmm. and also how it felt to try to navigate them. Yeah. I think what's really heartbreaking is that I wasn't actually tangibly aware in a way that I could give a name to those dynamics when I first started experiencing them. As you mentioned, I went to, I did a couple of things in my early years. So in around fifth grade, I guess I was around 10, there was a program and it's really interesting to talk about it today with the Supreme Court decision, right? But there was a program that was essentially around how do we get black and brown students into some of these elite private schools in New York City? And so you went after school a couple times a week, you did all of the summer work so that you would be academically prepared, and then you would have a chance to go to these private schools. And for a lot of reasons, I didn't actually follow through with that program because the amount of scholarships they weren't giving were enough, but I tested into one of those elite high schools in New York City. And that's where a lot of the students around me, who also took the exact same test, were predominantly white and Asian. And it was there that I started realizing that people were no longer saying, oh my gosh, you're so brilliant, you're so smart, you know, you're gifted. And I I was classified as gifted. Um, People started having these low expectations of me. So when I was struggling, it wasn't that anyone was asking themselves, well, why would this child who's testing the same as any other child in the school all of a sudden start struggling? It became, oh, you know, well, this is what we can expect of her. (laughs) This is what students like this do, right? And so I really struggled. I ended up switching out of that school, testing into another school for gifted kids, and I finished my high school career there, but I also struggled. I started having teachers say things like, well, you shouldn't take this science class because, you know, (laughs) it's probably not for you. And again, I was exactly the same. I took the exact same test as anyone else. There really was no difference in terms of ability. It was around the expectations. But I didn't get that then. I actually kept thinking, there's something wrong with me. I'm not trying hard enough. I'm not studying enough. I'm, there's something majorly wrong with me. And it wasn't until college that I started to shift that mindset and realize, wait a second, it's not me. It's everyone else. And a lot of kids that I grew up with knew that much earlier on. That's one of the benefits of growing up in a system that says, we recognize racism exists and we're going to talk to you about it and help you protect against this. I didn't have that protection in some ways. Oh, so, and you think it's because you were in schools where you were, were the minority? Is that why you think that you didn't have that experience? No, part of it is that My parents, and you know, I absolutely love my parents. They came to the United States because they wanted us to have access to like the best quality education that we can get, right? I remember my dad would say, well, you know, I noticed that all of the like really great, either wealthy or really brilliant children in our country were sending their kids to England, Canada, or the United States for college. Why don't I start you off there so that you will do well, you know, right from the beginning? So they came here with this intention that we would do well. But in some ways, they also, I think early on, were also thinking that it's just, you got to work hard enough. You got to try hard enough. And if you're not succeeding, it's because of that. And they didn't have quite the same legacy of racism that a lot of the parents of other black kids would be like, this is going to happen to you. And it's not about you. 
if I didn't have that kind of messaging that helped me make sense in some ways early on about some of this. My parents also, you know, in some ways got the same education, sadly, and they eventually also understood how it worked in the United States, but I didn't have it early on. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense because they wouldn't, right? They wouldn't have that same understanding. It's really challenging because there is this idea of we do have to work hard. And I think that Mm -hmm. is a valuable trait to have. Um, I think that oftentimes the majority likes to lean on that without Mm -hmm. taking time to understand why it's not even just hard, but 10 times harder sometimes for someone else. You're talking about your experiences and when you're when you were sharing kind of what the expectations were and because the expectations were lower i'm thinking um you know basically internalized bias you know mm-hmm. someone else's bias you've now taken that and and you start questioning yourself and thinking mm-hmm. wait so are they right like am i in the right spot and then there's this I think imposter syndrome is used most often with businesses, right? Um, When you're in a business, but also I think that can be true there when you're academically, you know, valuable and someone kind of plants that seed that maybe not, then you start questioning yourself, am I supposed to be here? And that, that brings a whole bag of challenges in and of itself. Well, you know, you, you mentioned like this idea of having to work hard. And this idea, like, if you just work hard enough, it's going to be okay. And I write about this in the book, in How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, that one of the things that happened to me was I did work hard. You know, I I remember, like, writing this paper in college on a subject that I loved. I loved English literature. And it was an amazing paper. You know, I can say that now. And I got an F on it. So even though I worked really hard, what I got back was, oh, you must have plagiarized this paper, so I'm giving you an F because black people don't write like this. So it didn't matter how hard I wrote. If I didn't do well, I was fulfilling the expectations. If I did really well, I must have cheated somehow. And I think that's also something that people don't often acknowledge. I thought like, oh my gosh, there was something wrong with me that they couldn't believe that I would write a paper like this. And it wasn't until later that I started reading other folks and say, this has happened to so many people nowadays, right? This is not just my story. Wow. Okay. So yeah, that's beyond um, that's beyond a lower expectation for you. That's actually just straight out discrimination because they're they're not they're they're now manifesting that bias into failing somebody that did something value. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. And, right. You know, the thing is, yeah. is whenever I hear these stories, it's like I. I know, I know that they're true. I've heard enough. I've, I've shared enough, um, or people have shared enough stories with me of their own experiences that I know, but man, it still never, it still never dies down. I still get real mad about it. Um, yeah, man. And I suppose yeah. it shouldn't, right? I should, I should get mad at it because that's. Well, absolutely. It's almost like if you don't get mad, if you don't have a reaction, then something inside of you has numbed out. Yeah. Something inside of you has given up, right? Yeah, we definitely don't want that. Now, I'm I'm curious because these dynamics that we're talking about um, from the time when when you were growing up, mm-hmm. I think I think some people, maybe a lot of people, would argue that um, they've gotten better in some ways. Uh, also, there's another side that people will say they might they might be getting worse, and we might be becoming more divided. So, what's your view on kind of the collective status of society mm-hmm. now? 
versus mm-hmm. then? Oh, this is an interesting question. Is it getting better or worse? I, I think I'd like to say it's a different question. For me, it's not, is it better or worse? It's that it's different. Okay. Right? So it's different. I think nowadays, I don't know that there's a professor in the United States who would feel comfortable saying something like, black people can't fight like this, therefore you're going to fail, right? It's not acceptable anymore. We know that. But are there people who still believe it? Absolutely. When we have all of the people, like, again, going back to that Supreme Court decision today, in some ways, that decision is predicated on the idea that affirmative action is wrong because... Black people are getting into these schools that they're not qualified for, that they're somehow less than other groups. And it's actually like, no, we're trying to level the playing field and acknowledge all of the ways that kids, kids like me, didn't even apply. When I was in, applying to college, I didn't apply to any Ivy Leagues. I didn't apply to any of those schools, even though that's where a lot of the kids from my school went to. I didn't apply to any scholarships. I got into a program at the college I did go to. And I discovered I was the only person in the specialized program who hadn't applied for a scholarship. Everyone else had one because I didn't even know that that was a thing, right? So affirmative action is not about saying we're giving a leg up to somebody who's less than. It's recognizing all of these systemic inequities. And so we found language to talk about and encode these inequities that make it seem more acceptable nowadays. And it's not that those inequities have disappeared. They're just more undercover. Mm-hmm. People are, it's, it's more uh, strategic and certainly it's, well, I, it does feel like there's a lot that's been built into our system that people are dead set on protecting when they yes. should be, you know, gone away with. When we're talking about racism specifically, because mm-hmm. your book is um, anti-racism, right? What, mm-hmm. what is the difference between someone saying, well, I'm not a racist, so non-racist, mm-hmm versus being anti-racist. Absolutely. So part of the challenge for me is when somebody says, I'm not a racist, generally, like if I give them the best benefit of the doubt, what they're saying is, I don't consciously ascribe and I don't consciously take actions that I think are directly putting down another group. But there's so many different ways, first in terms of how unconscious bias operates in our in our brains that impact what we do without even recognizing it. And there are also so many actions that we take in the guise of equity that end up being racist. And I really love how Dr. Ibram Kendi talks about that difference between racism and anti-racism, right? So racist, like if I really want to make it simple, racism means I'm doing something that has an unequal outcome. It's having an outcome that impacts one group compared to another. And anti-racism means I'm taking actions that really serve to create equity amongst all the groups. And so I can take an action that is not quote-unquote intentionally racist, and it could still end up having a racist outcome. And I can give an example of that. I would love for you to, yeah. So sometimes when I work with organizations, they're like, you know, and hopefully not a lot of folks are doing this anymore, we need to hire the very best possible staff. So because we want to be race neutral, not be racist, we're going to like go to the very best schools in the country and get students from those schools, right? If I'm in California, I'm going to look for those people who are from like UCLA, UC Berkeley, all of the top flagship schools. But when I do that, we're not acknowledging that 
there is already, in some ways, this racist pipeline into these schools. So those schools, their admissions of students of color have dropped since affirmative action was banned. Again, not because the students weren't qualified, but because we're not allowed to take into some of um, into consideration some of the reasons why they might not have had the same grades as other students. If I only limit myself to those schools where the percentage of people of color at those schools is like 10%, 20%, whatever it is, it means I've dropped my pool. My applicant pool is now much restricted. So I only get the folks who are white who I can draw from for my pool, which means I'm having this racist outcome. And without saying I'm being racist, I'm constraining my applicant pool so I'm only having access to people from a certain group for the most part. And so this is an example of an equitable, um, an action that I think will be equitable actually leading to a racist outcome. I appreciate you explaining that because I think it is something that especially people that look like me struggle to really wrap our heads around um, in terms of the unconscious things that mm-hmm. we there's good intention right mm-hmm. but intention is not always enough it's actually mm-hmm. often not enough from what i found anyways it takes work to uncover that and that's a big huge part of the privilege right right so it's i appreciate you explaining that i do have an audience that i think will also appreciate that Because I think Mm -hmm. us being able to really have a dialogue about these things without having a finger pointing session is really Mm -hmm. what we need because there is so much divisiveness. We certainly don't need to do any more. Do you believe that a non-dominant group of people can be racist? Well, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I was talking about earlier, right? And I mean, there's a whole bunch of argument again about, you know, well, racism is connected to um, my status in society and how much power I have, and therefore I can't be racist. And if we want to use those semantics, we can say, yes, absolutely, that's true, right? Yeah. But at the same time, if I go back to that simplified definition that I had, Am I taking an action that's leading to inequitable outcomes Mm. for a certain group of people? Well, absolutely I can. So as a person, you know, growing up in the U.S., when I was first like navigating, like, what does it mean to have an identity? Every time that I said, oh, some of those students, I'm not going to talk with them because, Mm. you know, they don't read the books I I like or they sound funny or they have like Mm. they speak that kind of accent. They're not therefore as smart. That was me being racist. That was me excluding someone from all of these stereotypes that I had internalized. Mm. Do I have the same power to leverage the same pain that people might have experienced? No, right? I'm not that professor yet who's doing X, Y, or Z. But we also know, and I've certainly had Black professors who also had some lowered expectations of me, who also didn't necessarily treat me with the same almost like grace that they would give to other students. And so even thinking about that, like absolutely I can do behavior that has these impacts for people without even acknowledging it. Yeah, it's it's like an invisible infection. Uh, the behaviors that we perpetuate sometimes without even knowing that we're doing it because it's just what's so programmed in us from things that we've yeah. seen. I want to like add, like for me, whenever somebody asks that question, can a racist, when they bring up this topic, can a person from uh, from the global majority, is usually my preferred term, be racist? 
I often say, you know what, let's not answer that question. Let's look at why you're asking it. And that's really where the heart is. Because often if it's a white person asking that question, it's almost this kind of like, let's change the focus. Let's look at your behavior, that what about is, right? And if that's the case, then no, let's not go there. Let's keep our attention on the behavior I'm trying to call your attention to. Yeah. And if it's a person from the global majority saying, hey, that was racist to another person also from the global majority, then it's kind of saying, I don't want to get into an argument about whether or not I was racist. I want to look at what did I do and how did it impact you? So in both cases, I almost see that question as a red herring that keeps us focused on the semantics rather than what's actually happening right now. I can appreciate that. I definitely can. I think the reason I am curious about all of the semantics is because I, mm-hmm. I try to pay close attention to a lot of things that are going on in my local society mm-hmm. community, and that's come up a lot. And my mm-hmm. goal is to call people in, not call people out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that has been a challenge for me personally, because I am in Aries, I am fiery. I've got a lot of opinions. <laughs> you know, I stand mm-hmm. up for what I believe is right and I have no problem doing that. Mm-hmm. And I understand that that's not always appreciated, wanted, or welcome mm-hmm. from everybody. So it's it's more of a um, holistic understanding of, mm-hmm. you know, other people's opinions. Yeah, I think for me, there's something, and I really love this piece that you're naming, because mm. I think it's part of what prompted me to write the book, right? Mm. That we have so much fire, so much passion mm. about wanting to address these inequities when they come up, that finding the way to connect with someone about yeah. it, to say, I need to raise your awareness about what is going on, because this needs to change, can be really hard. Yeah. And as you talk about this, I'm imagining that one of the challenges you run into is like, if you tell someone like, you're racist, or X, Y, or Z, they shut down. All of a sudden, the conversation mm. stops. And it doesn't actually lead to the outcome you want. It doesn't lead to the engagement and the willingness to shift the behavior that you might be looking for. So I'm always asking people, like, have your language match your audience. The goal is not to just call somebody out and then right. walk away, right? It's to actually get them to, to like really reflect on what you're bringing to them so that they want to create change, so that they want to take different actions. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, navigating differences, no matter what the differences are, are, are incredibly difficult. Um, and even more so when we're talking about things like uh, what's coming to mind right now are the things like politics, mm-hmm. gender. Of course, race has always been a part of the conversation when we're thinking about those things. And I think the reason why they get they're they're so tough is because they're part of someone's identity. Mm-hmm. And of course, their opinions come from their own worldview and experience, right? And everybody's different. But when we're thinking about these conversations, how do you think we can be more effective in that communication? So the first thing is I like to start out with slowing down. Slowing down and before you even get in the conversation, if and I want to preface this by saying if harm is happening, jump in and say, whoa, stop right now. Just stop, right? Stop the harm. But before I go into a deep conversation about what's happening, I want to start to look inside of myself, and I call it part of the inner work of this process that I describe. I want people to be able to know what is the approach that I'm taking in having these conversations? What am I trying to build here? What's my ultimate goal? And my guiding principle is 
grounded in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s work around, I want to build beloved community. I want to create a world where everyone is thriving, right? Not a world where only Black folks are thriving or only white folks are thriving, but where we're all doing well. We all have exactly what we need to thrive. And if I can like reconnect to that purpose, it's going to shape how I'm going to talk to you, what I'm going to focus on, how I'm going to call you out. It's not me giving up on naming the hard things that need to be talked about, but realizing that as I name this, I need to do it in a way that keeps you in my community, that keeps you committed to doing better for all of us, rather than one that's about pushing you down so that I can go up. When you say this, um, and this goes back to a piece that I just shared about kind of my own personality, right? When you say this, I think one of the biggest challenges that I've experienced is in this idea of maintaining my authenticity, right? Showing up exactly who I am, mm -hmm. but also understanding that I need to hold space and understand that full force me is not going to connect. <laughs> and another piece of my authenticity is the authentic desire to build bridges. Mm -hmm. And so that, so it, it's, it's really navigating that gray area and not feeling like I'm sacrificing authenticity in order to get there. Mm. How do you suggest people navigate things like that? I think the pause, just to go back mm -hmm. to what you just said, is incredibly important. It has worked for me in terms mm -hmm. of just, okay, what am I doing here? What's the goal? Um, it has been really helpful for me, but is there anything else that you feel uh, would be helpful when people are yeah. trying to show up fully, but not bulldoze someone else? Yeah. Well, before I even say what I, what that would be, I just also want to talk about this distinction that we often make between showing up with my full authenticity and speaking with care. And there's often this idea that they're in opposition to each other, that if I come up with my full authentic rage, I cannot show up with care. And I think we can. I can let you know exactly how angry I am at what you just did, exactly how it impacted me, why you should never do this again, without judging or shaming or telling you you're a horrible, evil person. And to tie this back into this concept of beloved community, one of the things I often invite people to think about is to say, think about your family members, right? Family members that you love. And I imagine, because if you're like me, you're most people, you got family members that you love and who do a lot of things you can't stand, right? The people who in every family member, you're just like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you went there. I can't believe you did X, Y, or Z. <laughs> I see you laughing. <laughs> yeah. So when we have these family members, because we have this commitment to everyone in our family thriving, we're willing to call them out. We're willing to tell them, honey, baby, you cannot do that anymore. But we do it with love. We do it with this, like, I'm going to speak real to you. I'm going to speak truth to you. I'm going to say the tough things, but I'm doing it in a way that lets you know I still love you, that you're still part of my family, that I want you to be part of my family. And these are the behaviors that have to change so that this family can thrive. And if we can take that stance and apply it to some of these conversations we need to have around equity, then that's part of what helps me still show up. You know, when I talk to my family members, I can be angry. <laughs> it's not it's not going away, but the love is still there. And that's like the mind shift that I want people to get. It's not asking me to tone down that fire, but to add love to it. Add this idea that, and my goal is to keep you in the family, to help you change. So how do we do that, right? So one of the ways, one of the things that's helped me a lot 
is learning about nonviolent communication. I think the concepts of nonviolent communication really supports me in separating out naming and being fearless and fierce about naming what's happening and what's not working for me without making it into, and that means you're an evil, bad person, I could never talk to you again. It's like inherently takes away, um, or at least lets me own some of the judgments that I might be having. So when I go back to that professor, right, way back when, if I were to have a conversation with this person now, part of what I would do is I would start thinking about, okay, what is it that you said or did, right? What is it that you said or did? And, and why is that hard for me? Why was that so painful for me? And it would be a combination of things like, you know, when you said, I can't write like this and I must have plagiarized this. And this is vulnerable. This is vulnerable. And we often don't want to go there. But I was angry because I had such a clear sense that you did not see me as an individual. You did not see the gifts that I bring. And I felt hopeless and despairing. And it was devastating to me, right? So I'm sharing vulnerably the impact that you had on me. But I also want to connect it to, and part of why I went to that place of despair rather than just anger was because this wasn't the first time I heard this. You're not the first person who did this to me. And this is tying into the systems of oppression that people like me continue to experience over and over and over. So I'm helping to name not just what the person did, but what is this larger pattern in our society that it's connected to. And when I do that, it helps me both still stay connected to, yes, you did this thing, but a large chunk of my anger is about how often this happens in other parts of my life. And I'm holding both. And sometimes, like with something as egregious as what happened with this professor, you know, they might not be able to separate themselves from the systems, but sometimes people do things that seem a little bit less, um, a little bit less challenging, right? Another version is when people tell me, you're so articulate. I love how you speak, right? <laughs> now, I get that when someone says that, it might be that they love how I'm speaking, right? I'm using a word like articulate or egregious, and they love like big fancy words, right? There could be lots of reasons why you're saying that to me. So this is where that observation step in nonviolent communication, being able to say, I'm angry, like, yes, you said this thing, but if another person who looked like me said that to me, I wouldn't be angry. So why am I angry? I'm angry because it also stimulated all the times white folks have said that to me and been surprised <laughs> about the way that I speak. And I'm angry because it also brought up all of the memories of the ways people were trying to track me into programs where I couldn't learn how to speak like this. And so my anger is both the stimulus that you provided, but it's a lot more. And I want you to be able to see how what you said falls into these larger patterns. It's a lot easier for me not to discard you when I realize that this is not just about you. I think that is probably the hardest thing is, is being able to, and I, and I want to ask this for the larger audience that's listening is, when you show up in vulnerability and you bring that information and you have, let's just use this professor as an example, let's mm -hmm. just say, okay, they let you say your piece, but it's like it hits a wall, right? Mm -hmm. Like it hits a mm -hmm. wall, like they don't care and you're just being, you know, name this, this, and this. You're just complaining, whatever, whatever their opinion is, right? They don't mm -hmm. understand the value of what you're trying to say. How do you protect yourself from being let down when you've opened mm. yourself up to be vulnerable and it's seemingly been rejected? Yeah. So in order to answer this, I need to go a few steps back, right? So when we talked about 
you know, almost like what do we need to do to have these conversations? An important step for me is to understand why I want to have this conversation. And part of that is also recognizing, do I even want to have this conversation? Me, back then, when this happened, would probably not want to have this conversation with this professor because the power difference between that person and me would have been so big and I would have not felt a lot of trust that his opinion would shift and that I wouldn't be further penalized in his class from then on, right? So this is a conversation I probably would have said, I'm not going to have it with him. I think I'm going to go to the dean. I'm going to go to someone else who has power who might be able to hear me differently. So a big factor in this is choosing, is this a conversation you want to have? Does it serve you? A lot of times people I work with are in like, I'm in a job. I can't lose my job, you know? And if I try to bring this to my boss, I've seen other people kind of pushed out of the company when they try to raise issues like this. And I'm choosing to keep my job, right? And I want to honor and celebrate when people make those choices. So first, do you want to have this conversation? And then the next thing is, okay, let's say you do. What is it that you're hoping to get? Sometimes all I want is for you to know that this was seen, that this was a thing and it happened, and I'm not going to be silent about it anymore. And I call that like a dialogue to be heard. I just want you to understand the impact of what you just did. Sometimes I'm like, okay, we're in relationship. We're going to be in some sort of relationship. Maybe you're my coworker, my neighbor. This is going to be an ongoing relationship. So we need to work for shared understanding. I want to understand why you said this thing, where you're coming from, and I want you to hear me. In a conversation like that, I might be like, okay, I just said something and I don't think you fully got me. Could you tell me what you heard was important to me? So if I'm hitting that wall, don't let the wall just be like, oh, I'm sorry you felt like this. I would be like, okay, so first tell me how you understand. What do you understand of how I'm feeling? And why do you think that's important to me? Why do you think I'm feeling like this? And if they get it wrong, I'll be like, well, let me, let me say that again then. Let me make sure that you understand what I'm truly trying to say and stay in that dialogue until there's truly an understanding of what you're wanting to be heard about. A dialogue for just getting it out there and just, well, it, at that point, it's just allowing yourself. I'm going back to your first example where you're just, mm -hmm. your intention is just going there to release it from yourself almost, mm -hmm. right? Just to make, right. to be, just to be heard and not, you don't need the acceptance. If they don't get it, then that's on them. Mm -hmm. But just to kind of release yourself from that idea. Yeah. And in a way, that's what my younger self wasn't able to do, right? Mm. Instead of like saying, wait a second, this was racist. This did not work for me. I was like, oh, there must be something wrong with me. Yes. So there's a lot of power in just speaking up and naming. Here's what I see happening. Here's how it's impacting me. And I want you to be like, I want you to get that. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to pretend that everything is okay, right? Yeah. So do you, when is your book coming out? It's not out yet, right? It's on its way? No, it's on its way. So people, all of your listeners can go ahead and pre-order it now. Okay. It's coming out August 29th okay. and both books will be out on the same day. Okay. Very exciting. Did you want to share anything more about it or? Um, yeah, I love that. We've been talking a lot about some of the content from the first book, but one of the things that I think is related to what you've brought up is that a lot of times people read books like this, they go to educational classes like this, and they get the content. And then when they try to implement it, they run into blocks. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, I know that I want to speak up in this moment and say something, and I can't. Like something is telling me I shouldn't do it. It's too rude. I'm being, I'm not being nice. We have so many blocks that prevent us 
regardless of what our identity is, about addressing these issues. Mm. And so that's why my co-author and I, Sarah, wrote the handbook. So we wanted people to have a way to look at those blocks, to examine like, what are the almost like unconscious agreements I've made with myself mm. that are preventing me from speaking? How do I work through those? How do I release those? How do I identify like, you know, when I said that step about what are the observations? How do I work through an example ahead of time so I'm ready to have that conversation with someone? So if anybody's ever been in that stuck place, you know, get the main book, understand the theory, and then get that handbook is you got to do the inner work to be able to shift some of these patterns that have been so um, drilled into us. I love that. I love tools and hands-on mm -hmm. being able to apply it. Um, I think it's so important um, to, for me anyways, I'm, I'm a learner by doing, right? I read a lot of books and I love them. Um, and like everyone else, we've got a lot of other things going on. So if we don't take that material and immediately start implementing it, I mean, is it valuable still? I'm not sure. But if we have that, I love the tool to be able to mm -hmm. start doing it right away and then working through if something feels uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's a really interesting question you pose. Like, is it valuable if I'm not actually implementing it right away? And, you know, I often think about this as a developmental process. And sometimes we need to sit with things for a long time before we find a path to being able to actually step into action. And so I think, you know, if this is where you are, if where you are is just beginning to think about these things, to reflect on them, to consider ideas that you hadn't considered before, that's your starting place. Start there and stay engaged with that until you're ready to take that next step. Awesome. Well, I always end with three questions. So my first one mm -hmm. is an action item. So I'll put my action item for everyone is to go pre-order the book because I think it's, Aww. you know, based on what I've seen, I think it's a it's going to be a really great tool for everybody that might be struggling and want to be better, but just don't necessarily know how. Mm -hmm. But for yourself, what would you give everybody listening today? What's something that we can start doing today? Something just small that we can implement to live a more anti-racist life? I think one thing, and it's going to sound interesting because it's this is going to speak to whoever you are, is to find people who have opinions that are different than yours, who are saying the things that you're just like 100% think that couldn't possibly be true. If you don't believe in affirmative action, find a person who's like really speaking for why it should be. If you believe in it, find a person who's arguing about why it isn't and listen to their arguments and understand not so much the strategies, yes or no to affirmative action, but what are they trying to protect? What's important to them? Because it's this piece about being able to connect to what does each person values that starts to seed for us to be able to connect and have dialogue. Okay. Amazing. I love that one. And then what in your current mm -hmm. phase of life, what are five words that you would use to describe yourself? Ooh, a blossoming, <laughs> which feels really strange to say in my fifties, but there's something about that journey that you described me on. I'm beginning to learn. I'm beginning to find myself and to step into my own power. So blossoming, I'm passionate, compassionate, <laughs> playful, and oh, still vulnerable. I think I'm going to choose vulnerable as the last one. What a beautiful collage of words. How can everyone stay in touch with you? Where can they find you? Website, connections, um, you know, social media, mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. So I'm on most social media sites, Roxy Manning PhD. And then 
I'm going to give you two websites. One is the website for the books, antiracistconversations.com. And that's where you can find links to pre-order the books. You can find some upcoming free um, podcasts, some free seminars that you can join. And then also my personal website is roxannemanning.com. R-O-X-A-N-N-E, Manning, like Peyton Manning, for anybody who likes sports, <laughs> .com. Okay, perfect. I will make sure that those are all included in the show notes. Thank you so much for sharing. This is really important now and forevermore. Well, hopefully not forevermore. Hopefully someday hopefully it won't be <laughs> something we have to talk about. But that for right now, it's still very, very important. So I appreciate the work and the effort that you put in to, to making this available to everybody. And thank you for sharing with us. Thank you, Heather. This was a delight. Thank you for joining on another episode of Diversity on Fire. I hope this episode helped you see a new perspective. I believe through conversations just like this, we can set fire to our ignorance and rise from those ashes together as better humans. Don't forget to check the show notes on ways to connect with Roxy. And please do consider supporting her by pre-ordering that book. We can all learn a little something from what she has to say. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions that were expressed today, they're our own. Please do your own research, come to your own conclusions. Connect with Diversity on Fire on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and Threads. I don't know, for for the first time, I'm actually excited about social media. Uh, it's Threads. So follow Diversity on Fire on Threads. Follow, connect, and engage. I'm actually super pumped about this particular platform. If you enjoyed this episode, I would very much love your feedback as well. Head on over to whatever platform you use that allows ratings and reviews and drop us a love note. Guys, I know it's kind of annoying when I mention this, but it is super, super important, and it is a free, free, free way to support the show. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Be sure to share this conversation with others. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going. <laughs>